welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, the second best China Africa podcast you've ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China Africa research, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, joined by my co-host, the enigmatic Dr. Enkem Kalu. How are you doing, Dr. Kalu? I'm doing well, Winslow. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm going to try and come up with like new adjectives for you every week. <laughs> I like enigmatic. I, 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 I like it, too. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, Africa Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The forum incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. So, we are continuing with this month's focus on the country of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we have Ms. Johanna Janssen, a PhD candidate at Roskilde University, in Denmark as today's special guest to talk about the famous Sikomin deal. Miss Janssen is the preeminent global authority on this deal. She knows it. Everyone quotes her on it. We had Jacob Kushner and Professor Laura Say on the show last week. They referenced her work. So she is like the biggest deal. She's the biggest deal about the deal. And basically... This deal, which involves two big Chinese companies, uh, Sino Hydro and China Railway Engineering Corporation, working together to do a resources for infrastructure exchange in Katanga with the Congolese government. She has written extensively on the subject, and I would say that her most famous pieces are the Sikomin Agreement Revisited, Prudent Chinese Banks and Risk-Taking Chinese Companies in Review of African Political Economy, and views from the periphery, in quotation marks periphery, the manifold reflections of China's rise in the DR Congo, which is a book chapter. Uh, Miss Janssen, what book was that in? I couldn't get the exact title. Um, it's, it's in um, a book called um, The Rise of China. Yeah, it's, uh, it's edited by Xing Li, and Stin Christensen, um, and it's called The Rise of China, the Impact on Semi-Periphery and Periphery Countries um, on Obo University Press. So it's a Danish book from last year. Ooh, has it been translated in English? No, no, it's in English. It's just published by oh. a Danish publisher. Oh, sorry about my ignorance. That's, thank you anyways. All right, Miss Janssen, how soon before you get your PhD, and what about its publishing status? Well, I um, will submit in May of next year, and then I hope to defend after summer sometime. And, I mean, have people come up to you and told you you should get your PhD published? Have any, um, have any houses come up to you and, and offered you any money already? I haven't come that far in the process, but I do intend to publish it, yes. Very, very cool. Well, Dr. Kalu is the person who knows about you know, shopping their PhD around to get it, you know, to, to get it I'm out not there. not getting it published. I, mine is actually available for free online, and so no one wants to publish it because <laughs> there's no money to be made. But I, I am familiar with the experience. 
And I wish you all the best and let me know if you've got questions about that. I'd be glad to share some of my findings. Thank you so much. <laughs> Today's episode will have us discuss Secomine and the DRC. This project, more than any other, is often the lens through which Chinese interaction with the DRC is viewed. We asked Ms. Jansen to talk about the project, its genesis, and where it's going. Ms. Uh, Ms. Oh, wait. Ms. Janssen? Ms. Janssen. Dang. Ms. Janssen. doesn't matter. It's Janssen in Swedish, but you can say Janssen. I know who I am, so it's fine. <laughs> Mrs. J, can you yeah. give us a little more detailed biography about yourself and how you got into this research in the first place? Well, um, I studied political science at Stellenbosch University um, in South Africa, and I was recruited to work for the Center for Chinese Studies um, uh, based in Stellenbosch. And that's how I was then um, recruited to work on a project where I was sent to the DRC to research not just Sikumin but um, the Chinese prisons in Congo in general. And so I did, I, um, I wrote, um, I, couldn't, I wrote on the DRC and I conducted fieldwork in the DRC for the Center for Chinese Studies. So that's how I started working for it back in 2008. And like they just told you, hey, go to Congo? Or did, did I mean, did you have a, a, a menu of options to choose? Like, was it just, you know, marching orders? Well, um, I, well, basically there was a project coming up in which they needed somebody um, who spoke French and who could conduct field work in the DRC and, you know, who was an appropriate candidate. And so I, I worked there and I was recruited for the project because I spoke French and because I, I assume I had the, the capacity to conduct the project. So this is more serendipity than ever since you were a little girl, you wanted to do research in the Congo. Well, I think I'm an academically driven person. I've been doing research on other things. I'm, so I think I'm fascinated by the empirical substance that I'm working on, but I'm equally nerdy about research as such. So to find out about stuff and to make sense of things and analyze them, I mean, I'm, I'm passionate or to say a nerd about those things. I think our, even when I was in... You know, when I was 15, 16, I would always go to town and sit in archives when everybody else just, you know, went to the library to look for things for the assignment. So that's, it's more the kind of curiosity and, and the thing of doing research that, that brought me into the field. And then it happened to become this topic because um, I found it interesting and I was recruited to work on it. So prior to, prior to that project, I mean, what were you working on? What did you int intend to work on? Was it vague China-Africa stuff or was it, I want to learn about, you know, the Chinese diaspora community in Maputo, specifically? Um, I think I'm interested in international politics and so my angle, my angle to look at China-Africa or my main um, kind of interest has been from the African side to see how this links up with Africa. I was like, I don't speak Mandarin. Um, and I've only been to China as a visiting scholar at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences when I worked at the Center for Chinese Studies. So I spent most of my time talking to Chinese stakeholders in Africa, actually. And so I'm, I'm, I'm more of an Africa person in that sense. And um, I mean, I did fieldwork in South Africa 
before I, I uh, before I started working on on China DRC, China Africa stuff, I I did field work in the townships outside Cape Town about democratic legitimacy and violence. So I've been doing other things um, before. So it's more I'm more of a Africa research driven. That's my background. Oh, okay. You know, continuing on. I just gave an embarrassingly brief description of the Sycamine deal in the intro. Could you tell us more about it, why it's significant, and feel free to tell us as much as you can? Well, I don't think your description was embarrassingly, you know, I think it was quite pertinent. Um, Sycamine is a financing arrangement, as I understand it. It's been spoken of as a barter deal um, or as a resources for infrastructure arrangement. Um, But I understand it as a financing arrangement. And the start of the story is that, of course, as we all know, um, the Chinese economy is expanding. Um, competition in the Chinese market is tough for anybody wanting to make any money or to have any kind of corporate activity. So Chinese companies, state-owned companies, as well as small um, uh, small Chinese entrepreneurs um, are looking for markets, um, of course, in Europe and in the U.S., but also increasingly in Africa because there's a lot of market, um, market shares to be found there. Um, Competition is a lot less tough in in China or in Africa than, for example, in the U.S. and the European markets. And so China Railway Engineering Corporation and Sino-Hydro, as you know and as many of the listeners will know, are very big uh, conglomerates in China. Um, Sino-Hydro has been working on the Three Gorges Dam. China Railway Engineering Corporation has branches all over China. They're doing property development. They're doing railway. They're doing roads. They're doing all sorts of things. And they were then looking for um, both for business, uh, business for their construction uh, companies, and also um, the China Railway Engineering Corporation was seeking to to um, to grow their mining portfolio, and so um, they were looking for opportunities um, in in uh, several uh, in Latin America and in, in Zambia and in, in Congo, and. The particularity of being a big Chinese state-owned company is that they could uh, bring in also credits uh, from, in this case, they had negotiated with China Exim Bank to bring in a credit line uh, to finance their direct investment in um, the Congo or uh, in Congo's mining sector, but also to finance um, infrastructure of a public goods character in Congo, which has been deteriorating um, over several decades, and um, lastly, um, in the in the war between ninety eight and two thousand and three, um, a lot of so there has been a lot of um, well, the need for post conflict uh, reconstruction was very big at this point, and now we're talking in two thousand and. Well, in mid 2000s, negotiations started between the Chinese companies and the Congolese regime, which was then um, and as well as now headed by um, Joseph Kabila. Um, and 
for Kabila at this point, um, he had uh, he had promised the electorate that he would rebuild the country. He has had and still has this idea of les cinq chantiers, which is the five building sites or literally the five public works. Um, we had, he had promised to rebuild the country, um, so uh, so un, he had promised employment, electricity, roads, etc. And for all these pledges to be implemented, he needed uh, funds, um, which was not easy to find at this point, because of course Western donors um, cannot bring in money uh, of the magnitude that was needed, and also Western donors prefer to finance not large-scale infrastructure, but other things such as um, uh, reintegration activities, transparency, human rights, um, and, and also, so of also daily needed activities in the DRC. But, so, SICOMIN, which was, um, which was actually the name of a joint venture formed between the Chinese companies and the Congolese parastatal Jekamin, uh, when that agreement was uh, materialized, it brought it. It um, was going to bring in significant funds, and now we come to the um, uh, to the discussion about the amounts, because uh, there are very many different contract versions um, circulating, and there's been different amounts spelled out in all the different versions. So. Very often, it's quoted that Sikumin would bring in nine billion US dollars or six billion US dollars, um, but these amounts are actually not set in stone because it's stipulated in the contract. Um, in the contract, I'm saying the main agreement from 2008, that the amount of infrastructure to be financed would be determined. De determined by uh, the profits from the mine because um, the reimbursement of the credit line would uh, be effectuated by means of the profit from the mining project. So that is how it would be linked, the credit line towards infrastructure and the mine, which would then be um, allocated to the Chinese companies, um, to a consortium of Chinese companies and Congolese companies in southeastern Congo, in Katanga province. And this is why this agreement has been labeled the Resources for Infrastructure um, Agreement, but it's not actually an, uh, a direct barter, it's more of a financing arrangement where um, profits from the mine will reimburse a credit line that then um, uh, per and per will finance infrastructure in Congo. And how long is the contract for? Until eternity or do they, a set amount of time? I'm, uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? How, how, how long is the contract for um, that the uh, profits made by the, the, the mine will be allowed to, to, to finance infrastructure projects? How long is that contract for? This is a very good question um, because um, in the original uh, contract from 2008, it was stipulated that as long as the mine is profitable, um, the the financing of infrastructure would continue. So there was no cap. Actually, the agreement the agreement was going to keep financing. Um, 
infrastructure until basically as far as, as the mining project could continue. But I'm hesitating now because because there's also a different contract version um, which was set up. Uh, it was the joint venture agreement which said that um, there was a cap at three billion. Um, so there's there has been contradictory versions of all these agreements, and we know um, there's a problem. There has been a challenge around transparency um, around Sikumin. So I haven't yet seen um, the third contract. There is several contracts, and there was one amendment we think later um, later. How should I put it? This is very com it's it's complicated because there's so many it's it's legal documents and there's one document that I haven't seen and that has not been published by the Congolese authorities, so we don't actually know for now how long this project will run. So uh, if 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 it is the way um, it it's been stipulated in the contracts that I have seen. From the beginning, it would continue until uh, until the money, the mine was depleted, basically. So they will continue financing infrastructure until depletion of the mine. But what happened in 2009, when the contract was renegotiated following pressure from the traditional donors and the IMFs, IMF, was that there was a gap put to how much infrastructure that could actually be financed, which means, to answer your question, that... Um, the, the maximum amount of infrastructure that can be financed now by means of the SICOMIN agreement is US um, is uh, 3 billion US dollars. And so I don't know, the reimbursement time of that will of course depend on how productive the mine is and how fast it goes, etc. Uh, but but uh, so I cannot put a, a time to it, but um, but within the lifetime of the mine. I mean, wow, that that was a really thorough answer. Uh, I know, and I'm sorry about that, but it's because it is immensely complicated. I mean, I've spent years now trying to understand this, and I still, I'm hesitating to, my, my answers are not so catchy because there are so many parameters to take into account, and we still don't have uh, full clarity because of the kind of non-transparency that surrounds it, even if I really try to penetrate through that non-transparency, but there's still things that I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, as a, uh, as a historian, I love complicated answers that can't be answered in one sentence that like, cause that's the way most stuff works. So you're, you're what you said was perfect. And um, I appreciate your support. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, I, I have a follow-up question, and it's been kind of a little difficult to wrap my head around the limitations, because they sort of make sense, but they sort of don't, which is the nature of um, these sorts of agreements. Um, so the $3 billion cap on infrastructure investment is that, at, um, or infrastructure financing, is that at a single point in time or through the extent of the, you know, the, the productivity of the mine? That, that it's the life. Yeah, it's basically a cap for the lifetime of the project. But, so they, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, but this doesn't mean that three billion of infrastructure will necessarily be financed, and this I think it's a misunderstanding on the side of um, 
the perception among Western donors, and I think also the IMF, the presumption was that China would just come in, bam, with $3 billion or $6 billion or whatever the amount was imagined to be, and dump it on the head of the Congolese government and say, wow, now you're indebted. Well, this was never the case. I mean, I spoke to the Chinese ambassador in 2008 when the controversy was raging um, at its hottest, and he, he said, and I asked him about the amounts. I said, is this about $3 billion? Is this about $9 billion? And he, says, I, he said, I don't know what, where the media get these amounts because in the contract there are no amounts. And he is right. At that point, there were no um, amounts specified. And then, uh, but because there were no amounts specified, the IMF was then worried that the Chinese were going to come and dump a lot of debt on the heads of the Congolese, so they put in a gap, but or a cap, sorry. But for the Chinese, um, as far as I understand this, this has never been a matter of um, giving a Cong the Congolese a maximum amount of debt. For the Chinese, this was about business. So the Chinese party, and this is now the companies, uh, the companies and the banks. Um, but we can talk more about that later. The risk is the risk takers here are the Chinese companies, <clears throat> and but they want their money back, so they're not gonna. Um, extend a whole lot of uh, more debt than they know that they can get back. That's a, that's so, a valid point. Yeah, and this is the point. Um, I, well, this is an important point, I think, in order to, to understand this, is to, to bring the business perspective into this, because the Chinese were never going to the Chinese, whoever is the Chinese, but the, the financiers and the companies in this particular case Never meant to dump their money in the Congo and never get them back. I mean, this yeah, is then, not the kind of they don't they don't want to wait for debt relief. They don't want to stand in the line with the Paris Club creditors. This is exactly why um, the reimbursement of this credit line was linked to a mine. And um, as as um, as last in the article that I published earlier this year, um, only four hundred fifty eight point four million had been dispersed, which is very far away from three billion. Um, which again indicates, uh, and that's what I write in that article, that the Chinese financiers, notably, are very prudent. And China Exim Bank even pulled out of the negotiations at one point because they did not like the way things were going. They thought this was too risky. And so the Chinese companies stood there and had to reimburse the bank what the bank had put in and then stand there with all the risk. Of course, these are big Chinese um, companies, so they can obviously pre-finance things um, for a while, but they sat there with a lot of risk because the mine was not yet going. Um, so, uh, to answer your question, uh, $3 billion is within the lifetime of the project, but I would like to see it as a maximum um, <laughs> that we don't even know whether or not, you know, it will this deal will work. I think an educated guess from my side will be that, you know, this um, partners will probably move forward, but it will take a lot longer, and we don't know if you will reach infrastructure financing of of three billion or not. But you know, it will probably move forward, but very slowly the way it has. Um, and I remember I was interviewed in two thousand and nine about this, and I said, you know, we it remains to see whether the agreement will bear fruit. And I still say the same thing at four <laughs> years down the line. So. 
you know, I think there was a lot of fear about now China is going to turn Congo into a heavily indebted country again. And that fear was a misunderstanding, I think, of what Chinese financing is about. Two, two things I want to ask really quickly. You, you mentioned Exim Bank, and, and for, for our listeners, it's the Chinese Export-Import Bank, which is really involved in a lot of China-Africa financing. You mentioned Exim Bank pulled out, and, and, and I remember reading about it pulling out. Is it still out? Is, is it now just these two companies that are, that are in with all the risk? Or is there another, um, maybe uh, China Development Bank is, is pumping in, uh, is, is kicking in some loans in as well? Well, all of this happened um, when I was doing field work last. Um, China, I mean, China Exim Bank pulled out the negotiations early 2012, and so by the time I was doing my field work, um, negotiations were still. I mean, they were back to the table because by then, China Bank of China and China Development Bank had also been brought into the discussions, and then China Exim Bank had come in also. So all three banks were negotiating. Um, but um, as far as I understand from the contacts I have had with respondents um, after uh, I left the field, it's China Exim Bank now that finances. So I think the funny thing with this article, or funny, but it's interesting to see how big this uh, point that I made in the article actually became that China Exim Bank had pulled out of the negotiations. It became, it was breaking news, which is interesting because people understand observers um, generally and even some scholars I find think that everything about China is set in stone that you know once <laughs> China as we imagine it decides to do something it will just go for it like the train and it will not stop whereas you know Chinese actors are business actors like uh, all other business actors and particularly in the Congo things move slow and things go back and forth because it is a complicated and very risky environment and so that China Exim Bank was hesitant about certain things is only really natural because Chinese bankers are bankers, you know, and they want their money back. Even if it's Exim Bank, which still is a policy bank, but they do want their money back. And so, and so, um, so that that they actually pulled out or that they were not happy at one point with with the terms is only really part of business negotiations. I, I think you, you, you made a, a, really, um, a really salient point about um, Chinese companies and Chinese financing for some of these projects. Some of these big um, uh, policy banks, they do care about money too, and they, and they don't throw money hand over foot just for, for, for resources. They don't think the resources are going are, are gonna to be worth it. And, and there are a number of, of great things I've read over the past two years of Exim Bank helping to put some money into a project and Exim Bank pulling out when they realize the, the project is, is no longer feasible. And, it's, and, um, and yeah, China is not nearly as organized um, or coordinated in terms of some of these projects as, as people imagine to be. And even these policy banks can't, you know, just can't be, in a, can't be doing something, on, you know, from now until the cows come home, putting money hand over foot if a project doesn't, isn't economically feasible. Um, and one thing I wanted to add to that, so you talked about how, how surprised you are that the media reports these numbers, the, the 9 billion. Sikomin is usually tied with the 9 billion, I've, I've found, in, in the English language press. But on the flip side, 
every China Daily or Global Times article, you know, once a day will talk about a Chinese deal and they'll throw the dollar amount there. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, 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 a $4 million hospital or a $16 million school or, or, or what have you. I mean, the, uh, we, we had um, Professor Yunjung Park over here and she talked about bad China-Africa research comes down to quoting media articles. But, I mean, China, China likes these numbers being thrown around. So if if Sikomin is quoted as being nine billion dollars, and 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 the ambassador's like we don't know what they're talking about, but a lot of a, a lot of people who 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 do a lot of Chinese people who are who are invested in, in, in the African spaces like that China is being seen as throwing around this kind of money. Would would you not agree? Well, I I think there's two things here. First of all, I think there's a difference. I mean about a $16 million school, these kind of amounts, which are small amounts, and schools are built as part of the aid program. Um, and the aid program um, is a different story. I mean, Sikomin is not an aid project. Sikomin is a commercial project, and it was not financed by any means as part of the aid program. This was a commercial transaction on highly commercial terms. Um, and and even though, I mean, Exim Bank, as Deborah Brotigam has shown very pedagogically, um, Exim Bank's, the part of the Exim Bank's portfolio that are concessional loans are very, very small, something like 3%. I'm not going to say any percentage because I don't, I don't know the figure <laughs> off the top of my head, but it's a very small figure. And the rest of Exim Bank's portfolio are actually commercial loans. And Sikumin was, is, was and is such a loan. And... Um, so the schools and all the other things that are financed, I guess, mostly as part of um, of the aid budget and not from China Exim Bank, um, it, it's it's two different things. It's difficult to compare them. Now, I do not know uh, actually how much, I mean, if figures are mentioned or not, numbers are mentioned in the Chinese press, this is not something I have researched, so I cannot really comment on that. But uh, I, I I'm talking about um, China's English language press, so China Daily Africa edition, for example. But that that you you make, you make a, a a good point, and the differences between aid and the commercial project, and even aid, as Deborah Brodingham has pointed out, is really freaking complicated to calculate. What is aid? What counts as aid? How do the Chinese count it as aid? It's you're, it, it is very interesting. But well, then like. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to push you a little more on this, though. When, um, when uh, Xi Jinping made his Africa trip, and I think he visited Tanzania, and, you know, signing deals left and right. But one of the deals was, I think, like a, a $10 billion port renovation project over the next, I don't know, six years or something like that. And I'm pretty sure that the $10 billion was mentioned by, by the Chinese side. So... So I mean, and it's I mean it's it's uh, it's not yeah, it's kind of a commercial thing. It's kind of an aid thing. It's um, and I'm pretty sure it is a concessional loan. But these are the sorts of things that that get bandied about by the Chinese themselves, um, because they they I've found they like that the numbers are out there. Um, wouldn't you not agree, or wouldn't you agree? No, um, 
Well, first of all, I think $10 billion sounds a lot for a court renovation project, so it would probably be something like $10 million or... I th- I Ten got- billion is a lot of money. It 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 cannot. I mean, it sounds impossible, but but um, and I don't know what he pledged in Tanzania at all. So I cannot really comment on that. And actually, I don't know um, whether the Chinese post the numbers. I mean, what I do know is that they always they don't. I I never get the amounts for the aid projects from the Chinese side because they tell me it's state secret. I mean, the Chinese diplomats don't talk about the amounts in my interviews. And so when I find amounts for the aid projects, that's from the uh, from the Congolese or African side. So, so I, I think I mean I'm sure you you certainly have a point. I just don't know anything about that. Okay, all right. Ne- never never mind. I was trying to spice up the podcast a little bit by trying to get some tension going on. <laughs> boring with a researcher I just (laughs) I I mean the thing is in a a lot of these agreements and this is kind of what we skirted around this entire conversation is that so little is known or understood um, outside of the individuals that sit at the table and try to hash out um, the contracts and the agreements and truth be told you know China is in it for economic benefit and they're in it for, um, for for the business aspect not not as a form of goodwill um, and I think that when numbers are leaked or numbers are sometimes even made up, um, there is an aspect of that that works in the favor of the Chinese entities because as these big numbers are being bandied around, China looks good. China looks like they're doing a lot of good and they have a lot of money to spend. And they look like, yeah, if they wanted to, they could just dump $9 billion into Congo um, even though the truth <laughs> is actually quite, you know, quite far away from that. Um, and I think it's these sorts of numbers that then leads to action like the IMF coming in and saying, well, you know, we'll limit financing to this certain amount, where in truth, you know, what actually winds up happening may not even get, you know, close to 50% of that of that magic number. That, that would be kind of my take on it. Well, I think... I think, first of all, um, I mean, China could dump nine billion into Congo tomorrow. China, I don't even like to use this word China, but I mean, there is, um, as I was discussing with um, the economic counselor um, last year um, about this, and he said, well, you know, the problem in China is not a lack of money. There is financing available, but um, China's financiers want guaranteed returns. They don't want risk. They want to know that they're going into a big project. So there is money in China, and this is not a secret. I think everybody knows that. Um, then again, I don't know if, I mean, when China is quoted as putting in China, I mean, when China's financiers are quoting, quoted as putting in this or that much money, it may look China look good to some, and for others it is a controversy. So I think, I mean, this perceptions um, element of it, I'm not, I mean, to certain people it looks good and other finds it, other, other people will find it provocative. So, um, yeah, I, I think, of course, um, it is good to be perceived as a solid um, financier or, um, you know, as a helping friend with a big purse, but for, for Chinese corporate actors, this is about business. And let's be clear, I think it's very important also to state that corporate actors are in it for the money, and not just the Chinese. 
I mean, all mining companies in Congo are there because they expect to make a lot of money, a lot of money. Because the, the Cong Congo's mining code is one of the most generous in the world towards foreign investors. Congo is a very risky environment, and um, as the affair around First Quantum, a tiny uh, Canadian company who lost their mining license a couple of years ago in Congo, um, shows you can lose everything, but if you manage to stay and manage the political risk, as they call it, or kind of the, the just to navigate the political landscape, you can make a lot of money. So I just want to be clear on the point. It's not just Chinese corporate actors that want to make money in Congo. Everybody is there for money. I, I, I think you, you, you made three fantastic points. One was showing that the Chinese, in particular, in, in relation to Congo, are no different than, than any other foreign um, countries or foreign, for, uh, foreign interests. Two, that there is a real big difference in, in what we say by the Chinese. So, um, Sikomine, Sikomine might not be the Chinese so much as it's two Chinese companies versus um, like Xi Jinping going to a country and trying to sign a deal. That might be more of the actual Chinese state. Um, and there's these two different Chinese interests. One is a Chinese financial interest in Congo, two is a Chinese state um, trying to protect its um, uh, maritime maritime shipping, maritime security, and, and maritime economy. Um, and, and, the th and the third thing is that, you know, when, when it comes to all these, these sorts of uh, China-Africa deals, we just don't know. We just don't know the numbers. Um, the contracts appear to not really mean all that much. Um, it, it, is, is, that, is that correct? I think contracts mean a lot. It's just that not all contracts um, come before our eyes. Would you? So, in in my experience, because I, I lived and, and, and worked in China a little bit, um, I when I got a um, when I did get a contract signed, the after the contract was signed, I would find that my um, Chinese counterpart would find all these things that. I didn't see in it, and they would start trying to change up what was originally signed. And and I, as I often hear the refrain, the negotiations don't start until after the contract is signed. Have you heard similar stories like that about Sikamine, or just these contracts? Just you never see them, and you you can't speak to that. Well, I think. Um... It, it is possible that um, Chinese actors then have found um, somebody that is better than them at renegotiating or finding loopholes or changing contracts, and that is Congolese actors. <laughs> so, I mean, um, there is this whole thing now going on that the, the Congolese um, authorities now want to renegotiate the mining code and increase the Congolese state's stake in the joint ventures, which means that, you know, the Congo, the Congolese state-owned mining company, Nireka, I mean, or the other state-owned miners um, that are parties to uh, joint ventures in, in the mining sector would increase their stakes and get more profit. So this is constantly underway and the investors get very worried because they don't know what the outcome is going to be for their profitability because they're in with a lot of money. And so this is constantly underway also in Congo. So, of course, and this is why I'm so, it, I think it's difficult to say something about what Sikumin, what it will mean, what the financing is, because we have partial information. We have 
I, my thesis concerns specific elements, I mean, around the controversy, and so I have good data to say what I need to say and what I draw my theoretical claims on. But to say something about exactly when things will be reimbursed and what the terms are, this is difficult because we don't know how many documents that are out there, I mean, that exist that, that are not published or that, you know, I haven't managed to get my hands on. So, yeah, and plus the element that things are probably constantly under renegotiation, as you say. I, I think that, that, that was perfect, and, and I, I love how you, you know, you only made statements that were backed up by evidence, and that doesn't always happen when dealing with China-Africa stuff, and I definitely try to poke you and prod you with, with some more outlandish claims, but you, you did a good job holding your ground. Um, <laughs> what will you do after you get your PhD? Is researching Chinese mega projects in Africa your niche? Will you be researching the Grand Renaissance Dam? Uh, for, is, that, is that, you know, your next book? <laughs> well, um, once I'm done with my PhD, I uh, will publish my findings, of course. I'm going to publish it as a book, and I have a lot of interesting ideas for articles. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm currently contemplating um, where I will go with my career, but um, there will be some form of research on African issues. Yes, that's what I do. I'm a researcher on Africa. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, any closing thoughts? Anything you, 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 either of you would like to say or, or ask? Well, I thought that was quite exhaustive. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a good conversation. We kind of ran the gamut of the um, psychomene um, project, so I don't have any questions or thoughts. <laughs> that was that was really thorough. I I, I really appreciate it. Um, all right, we are going to go on to our recommendations and then and then close this off. So, would anybody like to go first with their recommendations? Well, um, I would like to recommend a recent book or ebook by um, an American journalist called Jacob Kushner, um, who has um, produced a very interesting uh, product. Um, it's an ebook. It's called China's Congo Plan: What the Economic Superpower Sees in the World's Poorest Nation. And now, um, I will object to the title, just as a <laughs> just as a word of caution. It says it's called China's Congo Plan, um, but um, as you know, and as many of the listeners know, and as I know that Jacob also knows, China doesn't have a plan for Congo because there's many different Chinese activities in Congo, and they're not they are very far from coordinated and related as part of a plan. And this is also what he ends up concluding in the book, among other things, that maybe there is no plan, actually. But China's Congo Plan by Jacob Kirshner is a very interesting journalistic product because it combines um, text with pictures, amazing pictures, and sound bites. And um, so it, it is really to get... Um, to get the kind of what it you almost feel what it smells like or what it sounds like around the Chinese community and and different Chi the different facets of the Chinese presence in Congo, and for me it was amazing to to read 
the book because um, it reminds me so much of all the people I've seen and the, the, the places I've visited and the respondents I've talked to. But for, for the person who's interested in, in, in um, I think, Chinese presence in, in Africa in general, um, this, this book gives a very interesting snapshot with pictures and, and images and sounds and things. So it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting um, creative product that I would like to recommend. Yay! We, we, we just had Jacob Kushner on last week, and, and he talked about his book. And you, your, your name definitely came up as, as a resource he used. And, I, and I, I do remember reading the title of the book, you know, with an arched eyebrow. And then I think it was like the end of the first chapter, he's saying, does China actually have a, a plan? Um, and and a, a very, very good, very good point. It's a very good. I think. I think. Just. I think it's unfortunate that he didn't kind of. But I understand he has to kind of have that title to make it catchy. But I think it's a tad unfortunate <laughs> because it's it's misleading. I think. But but the book is lovely. Yeah. I. But you know. I. I'm sure he had. He had no. He had very little input in the title. And and the and the book is amazing. I. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, Dr. Kalu, what about yourself? I have two recommendations, and I think both of you are in for a surprise. <laughs> the first one is um, William Brown and Sophie Harmon's edited um, um, African Agency in International Politics, published by Rutledge, um, 2013. It's a book. And the second one, actually, and I can't believe I forgot this when we had our first conversation, was the first um, policy brief issued on the round five, um, fifth round of um, data from Afrobarometer, which is an article on the partnership of free speech and good governance in Africa by Winnie Mitula and Paul Kamau. And um, it's essentially um, a public attitude um, survey or public opinion surveys carried on in Africa. And it looks at the relationship between um, per perceptions of free speech and, um, and, and freedom of the press to um, perceptions of good governance in Africa. And there's a, there is actually, um, based on their data set, uh, a correlation between um, perceptions of free speech and um, perceptions of good governance. So the people that believe that, um, that they are able to speak their mind on, um, freely on, on what the government is doing also tend to believe that their government is more reliable and trustworthy and there is less corruption within their government. It was quite fascinating. The stats and numbers are very interesting. Um, I'm not typically a numbers person, but I like the graphs and the information. It's very, very accessible for non-academics. Those are my recommendations. I, dang, that, that, they, they both sound, they both sound pretty awesome. I, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely check out both. I'm a big fan of looking for African agency. I, when I did my master's on Nigerian Chinese relations, I definitely looked at what Nigeria was doing to China and, and um, thinking about China um, and, and something that almost always gets lost and uh, what African countries themselves are trying to do in, in terms of IR. Um, my recommendation is an article that I saw actually uh, via Twitter um, by this person with, uh, with the name at Jack Sometter. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know if it's a man or a woman, but the, this person um, always finds really interesting articles and interesting news. 
And what they found was this, this piece called Why is the Horn Different? Uh, by Christopher Clatham. And it's, um, and it's talking about the Horn of Africa. I think it's in the Rift Valley Institute. And it's talking about the, the Horn of Africa by someone who's a, 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 apparently a famous historian. I do not know anything about the Horn of Africa. I'm, I'm a West Africanist, and I'm a pretty terrible one at that. But uh, this was just a really great breakdown of, of these different aspects of the Horn of Africa. And there, and there were two things that really struck me. One was when people talk about Africa and, 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 and talk about the um, artificiality of, of colonial states and colonial borders, and uh, I always have a little problem with that because I think all sort of nation states are imagined communities and they're all sort of artificial. But um, be that as it may, that's, that's a, a, um, a definite a definite complaint about about the states of Africa, but what this person does is interrogates it and says, you know, like Ethiopia and Somalia are really interesting because they're not colonial constructs. Ethiopia is an empire state and Somalia is a nation state. And then he interrogates what they mean and how they operate and how they operate in the African context. And it's a really interesting, nuanced argument. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk about how, how, how he ends it, but if, if you're interested in the idea of the state and maybe how the state interacts with China or, or, or with the outside world and, and how to get the idea of a state, uh, this article just for me was just really fascinating and, and, looked at, um, and looked at the Horn of Africa in a way a lot of people don't usually do. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it, I think. Um, we're, we're up for the recommendations. Um, you know, Miss Janssen, how do people find you on the internet? Is there a, a website, a Twitter handle, LinkedIn account that you would like to share? Well, um, my I have a website um, at the university's. I mean, I have one site at the university's homepage. Um, so you can just um, either go to um, Roskilde University's uh, website and search for me there or just Google Johanna Janssen. China or Johanna Johnson Congo, and then you will find my my website where I also add um, all my media appearances, all my papers, and everything is there basically on my work. So, for a university website, is it surprisingly up to date? Or like, are you the person who who keeps it up to date, or or do you have like an assistant? Mm, no, I, I, I no 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 I update my own my own uh, website you do an amazing job like um, thank you so much <laughs> I, I yeah as someone who's worked in a university and have seen university websites this what your stuff is really thorough i was very very happy with it um, that's great thank you so much <laughs> um and and yeah what dr kalu what about yourself i am on the twitter sphere um and i'm getting better and better at tweeting I um I can be found at Nkem E Kalu and don't be surprised if a lot of my tweets recently had to do with Nebraska football, big fan, <laughs> or Nigerian soccer, even bigger fan. Um but between sports posts and um and China posts, I, I'd like to think I keep things interesting. Also Africa posts um on my Twitter. And then um eventually <laughs> um I will be on Cowries and Rice promise and soon will be delivered i also have some pod um some blog posts to write up for how reason rice 
So I'm gonna get to that. <laughs> it, it's 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 complete it's completely my fault. I've I've let a lot of stuff slide, but um, it. You know, Niger- the Nigeria Super Eagles are my second African soccer team after the Ghana Black Stars. I know, wow, I like both. How can you say that? I know. We can't be friends anymore. We can be friends. Because, no, we can't. Because there's Super no... Super Eagles number one. I love then... the Super Eagles. I have no I have no beef with the Super Eagles. <laughs> um, and yes, everything's my fault for, for not getting your, your post up on Cowboys and Rice. This, this week has been a little bad. But in, in, in any case... Um, I cannot wait to have you up on the blog, and, and we'll see what, what, what's going on with that. Um, as for myself, yes, I can be found at cowriesrice.blogspot.com and uh, my Twitter handle at Winslow underscore R. Uh, basically, we do a lot of China-Africa stuff. I do a lot of China-Africa stuff. I do a lot of other random stuff. So you do Nebraska football and uh, Nigerian national team soccer. I do Washington Wizards. I'm a huge Washington Wizards fan, and I've been... Um, I, I don't tweet that much, that stuff that's not related to China-Africa, but I have, been, I have been talking a little bit about it. I think we're the greatest 2-4 and four team in NBA history. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that... Um, it's a great record. <laughs> it is. Um, and, and yeah, um, that's basically it. Thank you so much, Ms. Janssen. We hope to have you on again in the future. Um, that's it for today's episode. We can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Okay, so iTunes got back to me and said they sent a response weeks ago, and I have yet to find it. Are they lying to us, rejecting us to the tried and true, you never got my message? Check your spam. Play? I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check my spam. Um, but if they did, that means that you know we might be rejected, and I guess I'll try again. If not, I will find a, a way to get us on uh, iTunes. Um, time will tell. Uh, on behalf of Cowries and Rice, we would like to thank African Development Jobs, the Africa Daily, and Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. We'd also like to thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. Mm-hmm.